We're glad you're here tonight. Thank you for coming and uh, making time for the doctrine study on Wednesday night. Before we get into it, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for your doctrines and for your people. We pray you bless this uh, study tonight and bless those who are here. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we are studying this doctrine of biblical separation, and uh, we began last week talking about the fact that uh, there's no doubt when you examine certain passages of Scripture that God expects His church to separate from unrepentant, habitually sinning believers. If there's a believer who just persists in pursuing sinful things, it is an expectation of God that fellowship would be severed from that kind of individual. And when we were looking at the passages, and there are four of them that really deal with this subject, uh, when we looked at those uh, passages of Scripture, we came to five major considerations. That's what we were talking about last time. The first consideration that we thought about last time is there are times when a specific process should be followed. Sometimes you should try to go to the person privately, and if you can get it resolved there, that's the end of it. Keep your mouth shut and go on for the glory of God. Sometimes, if that doesn't work, you have to have a plural confrontation, two or three. And if that doesn't work, sometimes you have to go public with it. I mean, uh, there, are, there are proper steps that are spelled out in Scripture, particularly in Matthew 18, uh, as to how you can carry out the process. But that brought us to our second consideration. Sometimes the specific process needs to be avoided. In that case of the Corinthian guy who was in immorality, and it was known by everybody in the church, Paul never said, now go privately to him and confront him, and then if that doesn't work, take two or three more, and if that doesn't work, try to go to the church. He said, get him out. Just jump over the process and get him out of there, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The third consideration that we discussed last time is when separation is necessary, the entire church should separate from the individual. The entire church should back it up. The entire church should support it. If it has been worked through and a church understands that we're not, uh, the church is not operating some Gestapo force that's out there just uh, trying to catch people messing up and slipping up, that's not what the church does. But if it reaches a point where leadership feels that this needs to be cut off, then the church should support that. Fourthly, when separation is necessary, the entire church should pray for the individual. Prayer is an important part. Uh, it moves God. It, it, God is uh, a God who can be moved through the prayers of his people, and so his people should certainly pray. Fifthly, when true repentance has been determined by the elders, it is their responsibility to move the process toward restoration. Now, I want you to go to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 because what we're about to say uh, comes out of this, this text. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And in my opinion, what is happening here is that the Apostle Paul, who is the guy who said back in 1 Corinthians 5 about a year and a half or two years prior to this, he's the guy who said, get him out. Get him out of there. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. He needs to be cut out of the, of the fellowship. Now, about a year to two years later, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. 
Now, in the restoration case of 2 Corinthians, there are um, a couple of observations that we want to make. First of all, in this case, excommunication was sufficient punishment to bring the sinning believer to repentance. Excommunication was sufficient punishment to bring the sinning believer to repentance. As I said last week, I do not believe the primary purpose of discipline is restoration. And when you read most church constitutions, that's exactly what it says. It says the purpose of the discipline is the restoration of the individual. That isn't the purpose of it. The first purpose of discipline is to purify the church, to get the leaven out of the church. Then, if you have repentance that can be established, then you move the process toward restoration. But the first purpose for dealing with the issue is to keep the church pure so that God doesn't view it as a leavened church. So in this case, apparently, when that Corinthian church got that guy out of the church and they took their stand, uh, obviously, uh, this guy felt the weight of that. And in the next year and a half to two years, it broke him down. He realized, man, I've just lost a, a, a great fellowship, a, a sense of the word of God, a fellowship of God's people. I've lost the power of God. I mean, he was sensing, I've lost that. And it, and it broke him. Which brings us to the second observation. In this case, the punishment and the severing of fellowship was carried out by the majority, but apparently not by all. Look what Paul says in verse 6. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. Now, the majority of the people at church got it. But not all people got it. And I want to tell you, that is, that is the way I think it is when you carry out discipline. If people are in tune with the word of God, the majority of people should say, we are breaking off fellowship. We're breaking off fellowship from you because we care enough about you. We care enough about this church. We want to keep it pure. And if you, don't, if you realize then what you've done and you come to your senses and you realize that you're missing out on what God's doing with us and in our lives and in our midst, then in fact we can move toward restoration. The majority of people got it, but not all. And there are always some, and I've just seen this too many times to know it's true. And, and so what Paul's revealing here in Corinth is absolutely true today. There are always some who want to take the side of the person who's just been cut out. They, they somehow want to rally around that person rather than stand for what is right and true. As a result, they want to try to say, oh, the poor guy, let's just see if we can somehow snuggle up next to him and maybe we can, we can help. What they ought to do is take the right stand so the person feels the weight of the wrong that's been done. And apparently in this Corinthian church, the majority of people did, but apparently not all did. There were a few carnal believers in Corinth who did not follow through with the instruction. When Paul said, get him out, don't eat with him, don't fellowship with him, let him feel the weight of that. Let him understand that there's a real process that's underway here that's been ordained of God. Uh, let, him, let him sense that. And apparently some didn't catch on to that. And I believe that God ultimately keeps the records of those who are disobedient to what's right. And of course, I think there'll be a settling one day at the judgment of God for those who just took it upon themselves to go beyond the authority of the church. And in many ways, uh, God does give authority to the church. You don't want to misuse the authority. As long as it's being used in a way that's biblically right, it's certainly uh, legitimate. Now, the third observation is in this case, the proof of true repentance took between one to two years. The proof of true repentance 
took between one to two years. 1 Corinthians was written somewhere near the year AD 56. 2 Corinthians was written somewhere near the years AD 57 or 58. So what apparently the leaders of this church did is they watched this person over time. And as they watched this individual over time, they determined this one has actually repented. And that, of course, then led to restoring him to the fellowship because they were able to establish true repentance. See, here's the problem. When you are dealing with a sin issue like this, only God can see the heart. You and I can't. A person could actually be repentant the moment they are confronted with the sin. They could actually be broken. But the problem is we can't see the heart. We don't know what's going on in there. Only God can see it. So we have to use time. And in the process of time, you watch someone and see whether or not they are broken and bruised and they're contrite and they're humble. And we use time as a gauge to monitor and see what's happening in the individual life. And in this case, apparently those people from Corinth watched this guy uh, over one to two years and they noticed that he was truly living right and making right decisions in his life and relationship with God. But it was a one to two year process. Now, of course, in the Corinthian city, they didn't have a problem that we have in Kalamazoo because we've had situations, they're not often, but there have been situations where we've had to carry out discipline. And you know what the person does? Just runs to another church. And uh, the, the other church just says, oh, come on in. Now, we don't operate that way here. Uh, we have had some instances where uh, we have actually contacted the previous church to make sure that uh, matters pertaining to discipline were cleaned up and corrected. One particular case comes to my mind where we uh, contacted the, the, the person that had been under discipline, came to our fellowship. And uh, we contacted the pastor and the elders of the church, and we said, listen, this person's coming to our fellowship. We support you and stand with you in your discipline. What part do you want us to play? Do you want us to uh, send this individual back and face you, face uh, what you want? What part do you want us to play? Because we'll work with you on this. And we worked hand in hand with another church. But unfortunately, most churches don't even have any clue what that type of integrity is. So when you have someone who gets, uh, as it were, ousted from a church, even though it was biblically legitimate, they don't necessarily feel the weight of the loss of fellowship like this guy in Corinth did because they just run to another church. And the other church says, oh, come on in, we'll love you just the way you are. Well, that's crazy. And it certainly isn't accomplishing what God would have it accomplish uh, according to his word and will. But in this case, what did happen is he didn't have a bunch of other churches to run to not in the early days of the church. And as a result of that, these people monitored him and they saw this guy has really come to terms with things and he can be restored. Which brings us to the fourth observation. In this case, the leader who issued the discipline, Paul, is the same leader who could lift the discipline. Now, Paul's the one who said in the first place in 1 Corinthians, get him out. Now, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, take him back. So the leader that was involved in the process is also involved in the process of restoration. I think that is an important principle you don't want to miss. Because I don't believe that true restoration can take place unless the same leaders that were involved in the whole process are involved in the restoration process. In other words, you just can't get somebody else who likes the person and just says, well, I like him, so we're going to do it. You cannot possibly 
usurp the authority that God used to uh, pronounce the discipline to lift the discipline. The same authority needs to lift it, which in this case would have been the Apostle Paul. Fifth observation is, when the discipline is lifted, the entire church should forgive and comfort the repentant believer. Now notice what he says in verse 7, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Basically, Paul says, look, don't make him feel like a dog. Welcome him back. Uh, he, he's proven himself that he dealt with the sin. It's done. Uh, it's obviously under the blood. He's demonstrating consistency and character. Now take him back and welcome him back. The sixth observation is when true repentance has taken place, there is a broken and sorrowful uh, spirit. Now, that's something that, uh, that you can look for. When you have the Holy Spirit actually bringing a person to repentance, there will be a broken, sorrowful, contrite, humble spirit. The trick in this is if you're confronting sin, sometimes it can appear that you have that because the person is not necessarily broken because of the sin. He's broken because you caught him in the sin. And, and you, can, you can get people that can get very emotional and they can begin to cry and weep and they're so sad and they're so sorry uh, that they've done the wrong. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're under a conviction that they need to turn and repent of the sin. It just means they're sad they got caught and, and you have to be there in this whole mess. And, and believe you me, we're sad we have to be there in that whole mess too. I mean, this isn't something you just dream about. Uh, when you're in leadership, boy, I hope we have a bunch of cases where we got to go confront people who are in sin. I mean, uh, this is a terrible thing to have to do. But when it poses itself and God surfaces it, then it becomes the responsibility to, to carry it out. And one of the things that you look for in repentance is a humble, contrite spirit. You know, Proverbs says, if you've done the wrong, go throw yourself down, let them walk all over you. And, and I think you can look for that. You can see that in someone that truly is repentant. What do you want me to do? Uh, you tell me what you want me to do, and I'll be willing to do it. I'm so sorry. I'll follow you. Uh, uh, do you want me to come meet with you? Do you want, what do you want me to do? And that, to me, is the thing that I look for. We start a process, and, uh, and we try to see if the person's following through in the process. Because if you have a real Holy Spirit-led repentance... They won't miss a beat in the process of wanting to be restored uh, back into the uh, church of God. The seventh observation is God permits discipline cases to come to leadership and to a church to establish the fact that the church obeys the written word of God. Now look carefully at what verse 9 says. Don't overlook this. For to this end also I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, don't overlook that out of its context. In the context, what Paul is saying is this. God will at times hand discipline cases to a church. And he's testing that church. He's testing that leadership. He's going to see, do you really obey my word? Do you handle this in the way my word wants it handled? Are you serious about taking my word and will uh, seriously in the context of the church? Are, do you want to keep my church pure? Are you serious about keeping it from being unleavened? Are you willing to face things and confront things? God says at times, I'm going to allow a church to have stuff like that to see whether or not they will obey my word. And I'll tell you this, when a church or a leadership proves faithful and obeys the word of God, even on tough assignments like this, 
You're destined for blessings, tremendous blessings of God. Because God says, boy, those people really take my word seriously and they'll follow it when it's tough. Because I don't know anything that's tougher than when you have to do something like this uh, that becomes disciplinary uh, in a church setting. Dr. Ernest Pickering does a good job of discussing many critical matters pertaining to separation from an individual. And he lists the following reasons for it. He says, first of all, if the believer teaches false doctrine and refuses to be corrected. If you get somebody who's teaching false doctrine or refuses to be corrected, then you've got trouble. That has to be confronted. That has to be stopped. It has to be stopped right in the church. It has to be stopped right now. Dr. Pickering says, if a professing believer is teaching error and he cannot be persuaded to truth, to the truth, he must be excluded from the, from the fellowship. And uh, he uses 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20 as an example of two that had departed from sound doctrine. And Paul said they had departed from sound doctrine, and I've delivered them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I mean, they had just drifted from what was sound in doctrine and sound in theology. And he further states, the principle applies whether the professing believer is in our own local church or in some other kind of connectional relationship to us, such as denominational affiliation. We did uh, a membership interview a, a while back, a few years ago, and the person was reading our doctrine, and they were all fuzzy on eschatology. They didn't know what they believed about the future. And uh, they were putting the church in the tribulation, and, you know, you know I've got my immune. He just, I just, I'm listening to him talk about how he had his view. And I said, that's fine, you can have your view. I said, and, uh, and if you are coming in, you want to grow and learn, I said, by the way, here's our doctrine of eschatology, because we've already examined your view, and it doesn't really work, but here it is. You can take the book and study it for yourself. But I said, I will tell you this. You come into this church, and you propagate your view, you'll be silenced in this church right now. Because I said, this church will not allow you to do that. Because we know what we believe, we know why we believed it. We have crawled through your thinking, and it doesn't fit, and it doesn't work, and therefore, you need to understand something. You can come into our fellowship and fellowship with our people, but you start propagating some false doctrine, and you'll be silenced real quick in this fellowship. And, uh, and I think that that is exactly what God expects us to do. He doesn't expect this to be a free-for-all. I mean, when you think about things, let's say... Um, we, we believe in this church and we've proved through our doctrine studies that we're going to be raptured before the tribulation. That's what we hold to. We can defend that position soundly. It's the most logical position to defend if you literally interpret the Bible. Then you get another group that says, well, we think you're going halfway into the tribulation and then you're going to go out then. And then another group says, we think you're going to go all the way through the tribulation. Now, obviously... All three can't be right. I mean, somebody's got to be wrong there. I mean, so, so you have to believe God doesn't give his word and say, well, let's just throw this up for grabs and you pick one. There must be a way to rightly divide it. There must be a way to figure it out. And that's why when we do studies, we're very careful and we crawl through all the arguments. We crawl through all the issues. So we can say, well, what does the scriptures literally teach? And then we take a position and we say, we defend this position in this church. We know why we defend this position in this church. So you come in here with some off-the-wall theological novel idea, it isn't going to fly here. You may believe whatever you want, but you're not going to promote it in this church because you'll be silenced just that quick because we will not permit anything false to be taught in this fellowship. Secondly, if a professing believer is walking in immorality, 
Now, I'm going to tell you an amazing story that happened right here in this city. I know of a situation in which a key man in the church was living with a woman and did not want to marry her because of financial reasons. I don't know how this all worked out logistically. I, don't, I didn't get involved in all the fray of that, but that was the reason why he didn't want to marry her uh, because of financial reasons. He wanted to be accepted in the church, and he actually wanted the church to have a ceremony that would sanction his immorality. Well, a pastor friend of mine took a right stand, and he said, that isn't going to happen. You, you aren't going to be part of this church if you're going to persist in your immorality. And, and he stood against this immoral behavior. And some of the leaders in the church stood against the pastor. They stood against the pastor for standing up for what was right. Now, I want to tell you, from God's perspective, that minister shines bright in heaven. But that church is totally leavened. And when God looks at that place, it is leavened. And the reason why they didn't want to stand against this guy was because he was such a key part of what was going on in that church. But I want to tell you, if somebody is persisting in immorality and God surfaces it so the church knows about it, God expects that church going to do something about it. Dr. Pickering said, unity and fellowship cannot be maintained when there is unconfessed sin in the camp. The pure witness of the church is sullied thereby, and separation from such a person is the only course uh, of action. So if a professing believer is in a church and continually persists in immorality, you've got to get the cancer out of there. Now, the third uh, reason is if by cooperating with a believer or a believing leader who's walking contrary to Scripture, we would be partakers of wrongdoing. If we were to fellowship with a believing leader who's walking contrary to the word of God, we would become a partaker with wrongdoing. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 22. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 22. Now the emphasis here is you don't put somebody into leadership quickly because uh, if you do, uh, the person can become proud and he doesn't know what he believes and then you've got a big mess on your hands. But notice what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5.22, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. The implication here is that you could get involved in something that's actually sinful, even like promoting the wrong person for leadership, and God would classify you as sinning. That's the implication of what he's saying there. In other words, we have to be very careful that we're not promoting something sinful or we're not connecting to someone that's promoting something sinful. Dr. Pickering says, here again is a principle which flows out of specific instruction. A, uh, a servant of God may contaminate his own testimony by giving public recognition or endorsement to another who, though a brother in Christ, nevertheless is not maintaining a walk that is pleasing uh, to God. Therefore, you have to be careful about who you're sanctioning and who you're promoting because you don't want to be uh, promoting someone that's walking in, in a way that's contrary to the word of God, contrary to the will of God, then you become a sharer in that and you don't want to do that. Now, the fourth reason uh, is that if a professing believer is walking in a disruptive manner, I want you to go to uh, 2 Thessalonians, just back up left a page or two, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and look at verse 6. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof 
from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we may not be any burden to any of you, be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Uh, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Uh, some believers were disregarding the apostolic instruction and they were actually classified as disorderly. And the word that is used here for disorderly is one that means, uh, it's a military word, which means they were breaking, breaking rank uh, with military commands that actually had been given to them by the Lord. And the immediate context of 2 Thessalonians 3 is the disorderly matter was they refused to work. There were some people who refused to work. They would not go out and look for a job. They would not go out and find a job. And they refused to work. And as a result of that, they were pestering other believers, bothering other believers. They were causing people in the church a lot of problems because they had all way too much time on their hands. And they just didn't know what else to do with their time. They didn't like to work with the other believers like they were working and trying to get their work done. And they didn't have a job to go to. So they're just causing problems for everybody. I want to tell you, we've seen that. We've seen people like that. Some people that just will not go out and work, they will not, and God demands that we do something, that we have some type of skill that he gives us. I believe that he'll open up doors to work. And there's no doubt that some real problem people in a church are people who just refuse to work. They become a nuisance to people in the church, and they're constantly wearing them down. They're constantly burning people out because they just will not go out and work for a living. Nothing has changed since the days of Paul when he wrote 2 Thessalonians. So Paul says, you mark somebody that refuses to go out there and work, and you keep aloof from them. You stay away from them. You don't snuggle up next to them and, and let them feel good about themselves. If they aren't willing to obey this instruction, you don't associate with them, that they'll be put to shame. In fact, I think that that's probably one of the admonishments that should be given. You need to get a job. You need to go out and look for a job. And, uh, and you need to do that, and I'll not associate with you until you uh, are, are in that process, because this is a mandate that comes from God. Now, God classifies someone who refuses to work as actually living life in a disruptive manner. And, you know, this, this gets real complicated, because we have a welfare system now that... Um, uh, in many ways, it's good, it, and it helps people that need help. So, so, so please take what I'm saying uh, in the context of which I'm saying it. But there are some people that know how to milk this system. And, uh, and I'm telling you, they are just living life, refusing to work, and they're taking our money. And we're paying for it. 
We've had some of them, I believe, that have come into the church, and fortunately they don't stay around here real long, but uh, they, 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 they have. I mean, and, and, and they know how to play the game. They know how to milk it. They know how to get every dime from the system they can. And it seems to me, it's been my observation, that some of these people become a real problem in the church. They have a whole bunch of time on it. Well, what ministry can I have? You need a job. That's what you need first before you can have a ministry. Uh, but they're, well, what can I do? And where can I serve? Well, go out and find work. I mean, you need to get a job. And, 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 make, and they're just busybody people. Uh, and, and they think this way. So this problem that Paul saw in the Thessalonian day is a problem that we see even in our day. And yet, when you read this, it becomes quite clear that God expects us to keep our eyes open. He doesn't want his church stupid. He doesn't want his people gullible. He wants his people sharp. He wants them thinking right, thinking biblically. Certainly, he wants us helping one another and encouraging one another and supporting one another. But there are times when lines have to be drawn. And you have to say, you know what? We're not going to fellowship with you because you're just living life contrary to the Word of God. Now, our time is gone uh, for our study tonight. Do you have uh, any questions or comments about what we've covered here tonight?